The holiest day in the Christian calendar is Easter, the holiday that celebrates the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In this episode, Pastor Danielle and Rabbi Ari share their personal experiences growing up with this holiday and its traditions and exchange some questions along the way regarding the meaning of resurrection. Egg fights, cross lollipops, and life in between the chapters. This week on A Rabbi and a Pastor Walked In. We are following up our conversation on Passover with a conversation on Easter. Seems appropriate. It seems appropriate, especially (laughs) because you and your husband in dealing with getting ready for your Easter celebration in our congregational space had to deal with the potential of rain the entire time. And, uh, And that made a big difference in terms of being able to hold it totally outside. So you had to be half inside and half outside. And our building was still kosher for Passover, which as your people said, where are the tacos? <laughs> tacos. No donuts, <laughs> no right? No donuts. And we had a lot of kids discovering that they suddenly loved matzah, giant, giant pieces <laughs> of matzah. <laughs> so we had bottled water, matzah, and some fresh fruit, right? Which for our typical spread on Sunday was a little bit less than people were accustomed to and so for you know easter to be like oh a big sunday where you have a whole bunch of visitors coming and we had child dedications and all the celebratory things that happened for resurrection day for christians and we're like no coffee for you (laughs) (laughs) oh not even coffee no we don't even have our coffee cart right so all of those normal things that we have but it's fine right the um the benefits and the blessings of sharing space um at eight's claim far outweigh the inconveniences of needing to be leaven free and kosher for pa- passover every uh, every easter and it doesn't fall that way every year but every once yeah. in a while we have those we were talking about that because uh, <laughs> uh, easter's on the same kind of calculation every year and passover follows a the jewish calendar which has a leap month mm-hmm. seven out of every 19 years which boots it way back into the year and about half of the time It'll uh, uh, it it'll be a month later than Easter is. Right. So. Right. Um, yeah. So on those days, yeah. it's never a problem. And and since you and I have met, we held a um, a seder on our on Monday night on the first night of Passover uh, for Sparkers, and there still remains a bit of controversy as to whether or not. Christians should be doing that type of thing, and is it appropriation, and how does that all work? And and I think you know we're still trying to navigate quite a bit of those waters. But the the fruit of what came was that I think our congregation, those that attended the seder, they heard all of the reasons for why we're going to keep kosher for Passover. So when they came that Resurrection Day, Easter Sunday, they probably already had in their head, well, you know, this is important, right? And so they had some context for rather than just this is a frustrating rule and I don't get to have my donut on Sunday, right? Instead, they understand this is part of of Jewish practice today and also part of Jewish practice from 2,000 years ago. And I think it moves them closer to uh, a respect and understanding of, again, Judaism 2,000 years ago as well as today. And we did have um, at our Seder every year, we have Jews and Christians together because we just happen to live in an area where 
there's a lot of marriages where there's one member of a family that's Jewish and one member of a family that's Christian. So our seders become a, a comfortable place and space. For... And some of our members who are not married to Christians have found Spark to be a comfortable place to go on occasion. <laughs> right. So did you right. get any of those people too? Not for that seder, because I think that many of those ethnics who were um, connected now to Spark, you know, because they've now know, make some friends in that area, they've invited the Sparkers to their own homes. That's right. So it was really wonderful. I think Sparkers got to participate in a Seder at home, which there's no better thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I, I am thankful. I continue and remain to be thankful for the opportunity to to give understanding and um, and a connection. Um, I My prayer is that after our Seder is over, people walk out there now being allies of the Jewish people of 2,000 years ago and of the Jewish neighbors that they have today. Um, and that I hope that that forge is continue, you know, continues to form uh, really good relationships going forward. But I recognize it's complicated, and and I do get concerned if people walk out and say, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna now just do this all the time." And I say, "Oh no, no, it's kind of just come here. <laughs> we'll, we'll have it here for you." But we had a, a great, wonderful event, and then and then we walked into, of course, the rest of our Holy Week, which um, starts with Monday Thursday, which is a remembrance and celebration of of that Passover night or Lord's Supper night, depending upon who wants to have that debate, and then uh, and. Good Friday, which is when we remember the crucifixion of Jesus and then Resurrection Sunday. So all of that concurrent this year with the Feast of Unleavened Bread with Passover. In English is the only language that calls Easter, Easter, mm-hmm. which is actually close to the word Esther, which is Ishtar, which is Venus, which is the Babylonian, etc. love goddess. And so it's the name of Easter sounds like Purim to us. And so on those leap years mm. when Passover is a month later. Yes. Easter and Purim are at the same time. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's they're only a month fun. apart. So mm. that, that does work together. Um, but the whole, when I was looking at the, the word Easter and finding out that it, the word is actually Pascha mm. in the New Testament in mm-hmm. Greek, it's mm-hmm. Passover. Right. It's so Pesach. And, uh, and so the name for Resurrection Day in mm-hmm. in the New Testament and in the... Uh, romance language cultures is Passover mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or Paschal lamb and the Paschal this. And so it's right. a different concept altogether. Why Passover? Right. And so it always makes me wonder why, what would be different if... If we called it. If you called it Pascha. We probably wouldn't have Passover egg fights or egg hunts <laughs> or egg <laughs> Pascha, right? I mean, it's a little bit different in, as we talk about the commercialization right. of Easter and bunnies and all of those other types of things that some Christians participate in and some don't. Um, it, it gets a little bit... I, I do think it, things might be different if we stuck to the original languages a bit more. And I'm one of the few rabbis that uh, didn't convert to Judaism. Mm-hmm that grew up rolling Easter eggs, hunting for Easter eggs, because <laughs> my mother had been Catholic before she became Jewish. Um, and my father had given up most of his Jewishness during World War II. He just mm. didn't like it anymore. And even though his he and his brothers and sisters still kibitzed in Yiddish and stuff like sure. that, they didn't do anything Jewish, any of them, um, except his two sisters who did. And, uh, and so my mom still had this tradition of Easter hmm. eggs, and she gave that to us. So my brother and I, on springtime mornings, this one <laughs> Easter morning, I still, my, my prototypical spring morning hmm. is going out early to find the eggs. 
<laughs> really? And the way that the air smelled and the light right, was. Right, and little dew on the grass. Dew on the grass, all that stuff. <laughs> I still have that as an image. Huh. Um, and uh, I, I don't remember how many years I did that. I can't have been too many because mm-hmm. uh, it's basically a little thing for little kids anyway. Right. So uh, that was out of our family tradition after I was old enough to have any questions about it. Now, your mom grew up Catholic, but what was her ethnic origin? Like, she she from <laughs> She Eastern... was a Heinz. Okay. So she was 57 kinds, as they said. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so uh, my, actually, part of her family uh, came over in the first generations of people coming to America. And hmm. one of my ancestors was a governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. Whoa. I was invited to become part of the Sons of the American Revolution, but hmm. then they found out I was Jewish and didn't want me. Oh, <laughs> <how> a... <laughs> it wasn't... Something that I had ever wondered about, but I got the invitation. And, <laughs> oh, and, geez. As though there weren't any Jews here. No, I know, I know. I know. Ridiculous. Uh, well, what can you do? And, uh, <laughs> and another one of my ancestors was uh, Wendell Phillips, an abolitionist. Hmm. And, the, uh, and so I, I wow. do have all that. But then my, my mother's grandmother came over from Ireland, hmm. from County Limerick, which is a perfect place for a person with great language skills to be. <laughs> and then uh, my Great grandmother uh, of all sins married a German Catholic, mm. you know, so the Irish Catholic, German, and then it, their daughter married a German atheist, Catholic mm. slash atheist, and then my mother was the third generation of rebels and married a Jew. So. Got it. <laughs> but anyway, that's how I grew but up. But some German ancestry, because see, my German, family has some German, Irish, some French, some English, French, right? And... All of that sort of in the background, but. Um, egg dying and finding and and also an egg fight. We yep. have egg fights uh, where you have it's very fun. Um, so I grew up where you'd pick what you thought had like the egg with the hardest shell, and you one person you just, you know end to end we go one two three and then crack right and you'd see which one's cracked first and then that, the winner would go on. And Are you just yoking? I am yoking about it <laughs> yeah. by process of elimination. But egg fighting was my Easter. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite part of egg just, fighting was the great the great right, moral lesson the of great Easter. moral lesson of Easter was to be able to do it but it's a German tradition <laughs> uh-huh. and so I was just wondering you know part of I think what comes into play is it's not so much necessarily attached to a religious event but but something that's attached to maybe an, a nationality or ethnic origin way in the back right where you know I grew up with a little bit of German ancestry and there were, and I guess apparently in England and other places, egg rolls and things like that, all part of having that fun. Now we I thought see egg white, rolls were Chinese. I, I did too, right? Now they're rolling them down the White right, House yes. lawn. <laughs> Gets so dirty. No. The sauce is sticky. <laughs> well, that's no. a, by the way, that's a big difference between the, uh, the White House Seder and the White House egg roll. So there were, what, 24,000 people at, Quite the, a difference. at the egg roll, and there were like 20 at the uh, <laughs> Seder. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah. I, <laughs> One of the holy envies, right? Nuts, yeah, that is, that is definitely... Well, yeah, it's okay. I uh, We have enough craziness without uh, adding Easter eggs to it. Well, but. if I were to tell you which table that you, I would have wanted to have been at, I would have picked the one with the 20 people rather than 24,000. <laughs> Not yeah. so into the crowds. But it's kind of funny with the eggs because uh, we both have eggs in on our holidays. So right. we both have... Passover, you have an egg on the Seder plate. Mm-hmm. And Easter, you have the Easter eggs. And... They're both supposedly fertility symbols because eggs are fertility symbols in the springtime, except that we boil them first. Nothing's so, coming out of that egg. Yeah, well, not only, not only that, but first you boil it and then you roast the egg that's on the Seder. On the like Seder They, they teach you when you say how to make a roast egg. You do not start with a raw egg. <laughs> <laughs> it will blow up. 
<laughs> yeah, note to self. Note to what self. I learned last year. That's right. No, <laughs> but anyway, so so when people say, "Oh, it's a symbol of spring and fertility," and I go, "Yeah, that's why you boil it." So right. Um, the the other uh, the the thing that's really kind of strange is Easter is all about this resurrection, mm-hmm. and uh, and and all the pictures. Because I asked you about why. Uh, right. Protestants uh, wear a cross without a body on it. And, and he said that because they want to emphasize the fact that he was resurrected and is no longer on the cross. And so you were, then you said a more appropriate symbol altogether would be mm-hmm. an empty tomb. Right. And I thought that was kind of fun. Um, we were trying to figure out how you would depict an, <laughs> right. an empty tomb that didn't right. look like a bagel. Right. But, <laughs> but, uh, but an empty tomb, is, it actually gets the point across. Much and more. So, yeah, right. because all the advertisements in the newspaper for Easter services are all mm-hmm. cross, 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 mm-hmm. all the, all the crucifixion symbols, not the resurrection symbols. Right. And right. so that, that's a, that's a very interesting use of symbolism. I don't think anybody thinks about that. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that myself until we were talking about it today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that there's a, a tendency to just make everything super pretty and we ignore the original historical context of the story and the deep brutality of crucifixions and it comes, you know, that's where we get the word excruciating. And in the ancient Roman writers, you know, they talk about how this is the most publicly humiliating, uh, torturous death available at the time. And Rome didn't crucify their own citizens. They saved this for slaves, for rebels, for citizens of other nations like Judeans. And uh, we have, of course, Josephus's account that at one point Rome crucified so many Jews, they ran out of wood and started nailing them to the city walls of Jerusalem. So in popular, you know, current modern Christian symbolism, we have pictures of like a cross up on a hill and it's pretty and there's flowers around and all these things. And we completely ignore all of the the suffering and the pain and the humiliation and the brutality, the horrific uh, display of man's violence against man um, on in, in that symbol. We move, we move right to trying to make it as pretty as possible. When in, in the Roman days, you weren't even permitted to discuss the issue of crucifixion um, in polite company. It wasn't something that was permitted to be, to be discussed. So it's, it's hard for me to see, uh, man, every year, every Easter, the commercialization of, of this holiday, I've actually seen lollipops in the shape of a cross. And I've just thought, oh my goodness, how do you take this, you know, crucifixion symbol, this execution stake, right? Which is really, truly what this is. And you make it into candy or, um, you know, you try to make this pretty. It's not pretty. And and for Christians who really hold to the the religious meaning behind the, the events of Holy Week, I don't think we want to make it pretty because we believe that Jesus died on the cross, you know, for our sins, you know, that he suffered and and won a victory through this enthronement. And to make it pretty moves quite past very quickly um, the suffering of the crucifixion and the whole sort of theological purpose behind it and, and what we believe happened. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We we want to move, which is, you know, John 3.16 and it's on every, you know, t-shirt at you know, someone's wearing it on a t-shirt at every sporting event or putting up on a sign, uh, that's the cross for us. And to move past it and to stick it on a, a t-shirt or a bumper sticker is to lose entirely the, the meaning of, of what happened there that day. So I want to ask you another question. I, I uh, My wife and I were talking about 
it was in, this was in the news. We're talking about Christians who do an Easter night vigil. Yes. Where they stay up all night mm-hmm. and they prepare for what the resurrection. The resurrection. Mm-hmm. And um, we have an all night vigil on Shavuot on right. Pentecost, fifty days after Passover. And right now we're counting the days up to that. It's counting the Omer. The, and Shavuot the for Christians is Pentecost. Pentecost, right? right. And so our all night vigil is to stay up studying in case God were to reveal the Ten Commandments and the Torah all over again and, mm-hmm. and that kind of uh, thing. So uh, I stay up late, but I can't stay up all night anymore. <laughs> Younger I did. But, um, but your services are in the afternoon. Right. Because your church services are in the afternoon. Right. So you don't have the, the aspect of the dawn right. part of it. Uh, and so I was wondering, um, have you thought about what it would be like to reintroduce a vigil and a dawn service. It's very nice. I like that idea. Because um, then you well- wouldn't have to worry about competing with our religious school because you'd be out of there before we We'd got there. We'd be out there. of there before you got there, yeah. We've actually done, um, in years past, and I grew up doing, doing a sunrise service, and lots of churches do that. Mm-hmm. They'll do a sunrise resurrection service. I find that the crowds for that tend to be fairly small, right? Parents right. with children aren't schlepping their kids out in the middle of, of the night and getting them there. For, is that a Christian term? That's a ter- Christian term. Sorry. <laughs> completely immersed in me now. It's part of my blood. <laughs> uh, so I think, yeah, it's, it would be, it's beautiful. It can be quite lovely. It also can be quite cold. Um, <laughs> and when I grew up, before every, anyone knew any better for environmental reasons, we actually put little messages of hope inside helium balloons. And then we released all of those balloons on resurrection anymore. Now we can't do that anymore because now we know it's really bad and terrible for the environment and kills birds and all these other things. I'm sure we had no intention of doing at the time. But it was lovely to see sort of the beautiful sunrise and the colors go up into the sky and, and a picture of hope. You know, the other vigil night that I think of when I think of the Bible is actually Passover night, right? Where it says that the Lord kept watch. And so this is the night of watching. And I think it's Exodus 12, right? Yep. And uh, Leil Shimurim, the right, night of watching. The night of watching. And we have some echo of that in our story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane after they finish the Passover meal or the Last Supper meal, if whoever wants to have that debate, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus says to the disciples, he goes back and he says, oh, keep, keep watch with me, right? This is the night of watching, so keep watch. And he keeps finding them asleep, which I completely understand after three or four glasses of wine and, and some meat at their meal. No wonder these disciples, likely a little bit young, <laughs> keep him falling asleep every time he goes back and he's, he's sitting there praying and trying to stay awake. I, I like the idea of staying awake. I think one of the things I've been wrestling about and considering is if you try to put yourself back in the mindset of those early followers of Jesus, um, they're there and they have hope, right? That, uh, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah that they've been waiting for. And their hope is dashed when they see him on the cross and they put, Pilate puts a sign above his head that says King of the Jews. And some of the, you know, leaders, the upper, the aristocracy um, leaders of that day went to him and said, no, 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 don't say he's the King of the Jews. Just say that he claimed he was the King of the Jews. And Pilate puts it in three different languages and uh, in Latin and in Greek and in, in Hebrew. And he said, no, what I've written, I've written. And I think it's Rome's big right, fist towards the Judeans, towards the Jewish people. Hey, if you want to think that you're going to be able to find yourself a leader and find a messianic revolt here, here's what we're going to do to anyone you claim to be king, right? So it's intended to be an insult. It's intended to harm, uh, to harm any hope that the people might have of self-rule. 
But for Christians and for the gospel writers, they, they also see irony in the statement, right? Because they believe that it's in that crucifixion that on this side of the resurrection, looking through that lens, they can say, ah, he is the king of the Jews. He did overcome victory unto death because he, on the third day he rose again. And so we believe this to be a, a true statement, um, even though it, it didn't seem like it in the moment. But what, what I don't think um, we have the discipline to do or, or we try to remove that, that view of the lens of the resurrection, how would we have felt, how would I have felt if I had just watched Friday Right, and then we take his body off the tomb and we lay it into the grave before the sun sets because it's going to be Shabbat. And then that whole Shabbat, I sit and I think, "Wow, there's no hope." Right? Herod's still in charge. Pilate's still in charge. Caesar is still claiming to be God. Rome is still here, and we should all hide because what they did to him, they're probably going to do to us too. And that idea of watching, right, of keeping vigil, there, there in that, then there is an expectation that something will change that Sunday morning. And I don't think anyone 2,000 years ago thought that that was going to happen to them Sunday morning. When the women go to the tomb, they go to dress the body. They go to continue the Jewish practices of taking care of the body after death. They don't go expecting to find an empty tomb. There is no hope or expectation as they approach. And then as they get there, you know, expecting to take care of the thing, of the person they believe is dead, they find then an empty tomb, and they don't quite know what to do with that. And it depends upon, you know, which gospel account that you're reading, but the women go back and they tell the disciples who are still all hiding, which I would too, he's not there, he's risen. And um, and at first, you know, they have this conversation, like, where is he? And, and then the angel says, he's not here, and he's gone, and go tell. And then there's this other story of Mary in the gospel of John, where she sticks around, and she's sitting there at the tomb and she's crying because they, she believes they've taken his body away. Like this, this last hope that they had of at least caring for their rabbi's body in death and, and making sure he had decency in burial after such a humiliation um, is dashed, right? They've, they've taken his body, the Romans, right? The Romans have taken his body. What are they going to do now? I mean, have we nothing left? And uh, she sees somebody and it says, thinking he's the gardener, she says to him, Hey, can you just tell me where you've laid his body and, and I'll go get it? Which I also think is, wow, how are you going to go and do that, Mary? Are you going to carry a full-grown male and where are you going to take his body? And, but she's just desperate to find him, to find his remains. And then thinking he's the gardener, she says this and then he says, it's, G- it's Jesus. She doesn't recognize him right away. And he says, Mary, Miriam, she's Rabboni, my rabbi. And and that's that's the point where she's totally surprised, right? What, what are we supposed to do with this? And everything following that event for Easter Sunday, for Resurrection Day for Christians is to try to sort out, what does this mean? Because even though there's a resurrection, Herod's still on the throne, Pilate's still on the throne, Caesar's still claiming to be God. So how do we live in this present reality? And, and can we really contend with the fact that a lot of us live in the Saturday? Hmm. A, lot of, a lot of life for a lot of us is spent in Saturday. So let me ask you about the resurrection of one thing. Um, when the Torah was revealed, the rabbis mm-hmm. make a big deal out of the fact that everybody saw it. Hmm. The entire Israelite nation, they were all gathered because they were in the wilderness. Right, right, right. And everybody saw it. So the public nature of the revelation made it was supposed to be proof that this is actually right. God right. talking. Right. And it scared the heck out of everybody. And they wanted sure. to have Moses listen. So in the end... The rest of it was only heard by Moses. Right. But it started off totally public. Right. So if this were a Jewish situation, 
where God is continuing the tradition of continuing. Sure. Revel- Why wasn't it a more public revel- revelation of the resurrection? Well, I, I think that's a, a great question. And um, part of what I would respond to is I think it was public. I just think that people were still trying to figure out what it meant. So we have accounts where 500 people saw, um, where other other bodies were also resurrected that day, and people in Jerusalem attested to seeing them walk around. We've got not just a few women at the tomb then going and, and saying he is risen and then just having to deal with that story, but he appears to the disciples in the upper room, but he also appears to them on the Mount of Olives in a sense. He also appears to them again in Galilee. Um, the Apostle Paul seems to have some experience. So you're with the saying part of it of was Jesus. that the people were too dispersed to appear to them all at once. Um, I, I mean, don't. They weren't all in the same, together in one. <clears throat> right. Camp. I mean, right. Sunday morning. I mean, they're not all in one spot. Right. We have that initial resurrection, and then we have appearances, and then we have the ascension. Um, the other thing that I think Christians would say is that we have the then full manifestation of the of heaven and earth being joined together of that separation. Um, that's what sort of we see in the resurrection and, and the ascension, right? That that God's kingdom is now fully starting the process of coming here on earth as it is in heaven, which is our Lord's prayer that we pray. That that happens on Pentecost Shavuot, right? We see this coming of the Holy Spirit that the house of God uh, blows through again and 3,000 are added to their number that day and daily are added to their number. So so we have more of a um, public experience of the power and the wind of God um, at that at that moment. Um, ultimately, I don't know if you saw this last week, Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times, he's been having a conversation with a couple of different uh, Christian leaders. And back in December, January, he had a conversation with a, a pastor, more conservative, reformed Christian pastor in New York, very quite popular, um, Tim Keller. And his question to Tim Keller was, am I a Christian? But I don't really believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection, but I really want to follow Jesus's teachings. And I like what I see. Or he says, I like That's what I see. That's basically when, another question I've asked you, right. which is, what would Christianity be without the resurrection. The resurrection. And I, my answer is, well, then it would be even more, hopefully, focused on his actual teachings, right, rather than only uh, the death, burial, and resurrection. If I had a critique of Christianity, it would be that we've, we, go, we jump right to birth of Jesus to death of Jesus, and we ignore, you know, 30 years in between where there's teaching and life and Jewish practice That's and interesting. That, that, that makes a whole different definition of a twice-a-year Christian. Right. It's a birth and death Christian, not a daily life. Not a daily life Christian. I love that. It's a great insight, Ari. Yeah. And I think if we think about, when I think about first century Jewish context and then following the develop, the fuller development of rabbinic Judaism and the Talmud, that's so focused on halakha. How do you walk out the commandments of Torah? How do you follow your rabbi? If this rabbi says this and this rabbi says this, which one do you follow or which one do you like? And how do you take on their yoke, right? Their their interpretation of the text. And when I think much of my life is centered around trying to follow and understand more those teachings of Jesus so that I can lay them out in my life today. And 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And I hear halakhic discussion in that echo. It's one of the reasons why I love studying Perkei Avot with you, saying the Father's right? Because in doing that, I hear so much more of how text was being interpreted in Jesus's day, which then shines light on how I can understand it. Actually, you know, um, I don't see you living resurrection Hmm. because how do you do that? Right, right. What I see you is living 
the teachings mm -hmm. and trying mm -hmm. to make your life be and uh, like like his and learning the things that he taught and living the things that he taught. Right. So I see you as a living Christian, mm -hmm. not a waiting Christian. Yeah, it's interesting. Living and, versus waiting. Yeah. And so it, uh, that's the problem about a statement of belief. You can't. Right. right. You can't see belief. Right. Right. You can see people living out what they do. Right. And so when my wife first went mm. to Israel with me and met a lot of my friends in this uh, particularly Orthodox context, but it wasn't so much that they were Orthodox. It was that they mm. lived the mitzvot, they lived the mm. commandments, and they had joy, they had commitment, right. and they weren't right. doing it for thank you, and they weren't doing it to get to heaven, and they weren't doing it this, that, and the other. They were mm. doing it because it was the right thing to do, and that was the community in which they lived. And when she saw that... She'd never seen that before, and she was so impressed with that hmm. um, that the, that she, it changed all of her thoughts about about traditional Judaism right. and about right. the way people can be. And so, um, some life being found in that life being yeah. found, and people doing it every day and walking the walk. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, not just talking about what they believed or what they expected, right. but basically, the only difference was that they actually did stuff. They didn't ask for thank you. They just mm -hmm. did it. And, uh, and, and, uh, and maybe it's because I have nice friends, but I think it was because they were, they were living out their religion. And so right. the, the, the big difference to, to me about religion is not so much what people say they believe or think mm -hmm. they believe or mm -hmm. wrestle with as a mm -hmm. concept of belief, but what they do anyway in their life. Mm -hmm. And the way, you know, we've talked about this a thousand times, is that the only way I judge a religion is by the way that people live. Right. Doesn't matter what anybody says about what it's promising. The only thing that's right. really important to right. me is how do you live your life and how does your religion help you live right. this life well? Right. I agreed. I think there's been some discussion. We have these ancient creeds in, in Christianity, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, where um, it, it jumps again from birth to death, burial, and resurrection very quickly. And we don't have a lot of conversation. And that's been one of the modern critiques of those creeds. Like, how come we're not talking about the life in between those chapters? And, and if we weren't intended to know about that life in between the chapters, then why do we have our gospels right? that are telling us all these things? Here's where he walked, and here's how he talked, and how he did those things. But I would say that what happens in the resurrection for me as a follower of Jesus is that in the resurrection, I see not an, a, a ticket to a heavenly amusement park, but I see the summons to the service of a great king. That in the life that, and, and victory over the pagan rulers, like the, the chaos and the death and the horror that, that this world can offer on those Fridays and Saturdays in between, all of that wickedness. For me as a Christian, I see the beginnings of, of the victory being won in the resurrection, that, um, that in Christ now I can have full and new life, and that as I live that resurrected life, it makes the living of his teachings that much more alive and interesting and, and full for me because I, I'm currently also having an experience with the resurrected person of Jesus. And so uh, I, I don't know if I could do the, the chapters between the birth and the death if I didn't have the resurrection on the backside. So it, it's all for me, not, not only one. Um, that, but uh, this week, uh, this last week, uh, Nicholas Kristof had a an, an follow-up article interview with Jimmy Carter. And he said, so am I a Christian, right? I, I want to follow these portions of Jesus's teachings, but I don't really believe in, in this or, or in the resurrection and sort of how do I negotiate all of that? And Jimmy Carter's 
response ultimately is like, well, you know, this changes how I live, and it's also a belief, right? It's it's a place of faith. And but he also said he wouldn't ever judge and say whether somebody is or isn't a Christian, right? Based on based on those things. I like the wrestling. It's all the questions you've been asking, right? What if what if we didn't have Friday or what if we didn't have Sunday? What would Christianity be without those things? What else would we be remembering or what stories would be telling? What if um, what if the Jew- Israelites didn't have the Passover, right? What, what stories would we be continuing to tell or how do we find those identities as our people? It's, it's a good question to keep wrestling with. And I, as always, deeply appreciate all the questions you have and the insights. I've learned a lot today. I have one more thing to say. Please. Which is that I now see that your living out those teachings is a way of personally resurrecting him. Yes. Yep. That's right. Mazel yeah. Baruch Hashem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll tell next time. Okay. Thanks, sorry.